Today we are going to be looking at Psalm 130 and uh, calling the, the, the title of the sermon Rescue from, from Despair. And we'll get into Psalm 130 in, in just a few moments. But when I was in college, there was a really popular television show, and you guys might remember it. And it was titled, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You guys, everybody remember that show? Um, I always thought it was a fun show, tuned in quite a bit to watch Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And you know, the gist of that show is that you'd have contestants come on the show for the opportunity to win a million dollars, right? And they'd be all excited about the opportunity to win a million dollars. And for any of our younger people who have never seen this show, they would go, you'd have a contestant, they go on the show, they're, they're there to try to win a million dollars, and they'd go and answer all these questions. And sometimes, you know, as you progress through the show, the seat, not literally, but the, figuratively, the heat, or the seat got hotter and hotter. You know, they're on the hot seat, right? And sometimes they would get to a certain question, and they would just squirm in their chair. They'd be a little totally befuddled, totally confused. And Regis, just in the kind, gentle way the host Regis that he was, he'd, he'd kind of say, well, um, you know, you've got a lifeline to use. Like, you can use the lifeline. If you want to use a lifeline right now, go ahead. And the music would get tense, and you would be kind of like sitting in your chair thinking, all right, what are they going to do? Um, I know the answer, but they don't. And what's going on here? And how are they going to get their answer? And so they would have a friend, part of the deal was they'd have a friend who was like their expert, right? The friend was supposed to be their expert to help them out in this quote-unquote desperate situation that they were in. And sometimes the friend was the expert. Sometimes the friend gave, gave the right answer, and they won their money and moved on to the next question. And sometimes, you know, that person really wasn't much help at all. They didn't have the answer. Or maybe... Maybe they even gave them the wrong answer. I think we've, we probably saw all three of those uh, results for people who were on that show. But as you guys know, in the game of life, there are much more serious problems and questions that come up in our lives that require answers that a game show can't help you with. And today, we're going to be walking through Psalm 130. And we're going to walk through this together. The author of the psalm is, is unknown. But he's dealing with a serious problem. And as we're going to see in a, in a few more moments when we dive in here, he's dealing with a crisis, a real serious problem, much more bigger than what a game show host lifeline can, can help them with. But he needs a, a, a lifeline nonetheless. Because the stakes in his situation with his problem, they're much more serious. It's, it's a matter of like life and death. It's much more higher of a lifeline situation than just the pursuit of wealth, something that's here today and gone tomorrow. Now, before we get into Psalm 130, I just want to give you a little background about it, because when you open up your Psalm 130 in your Bible, you'll probably see the title, A Song of Ascents. And probably a lot of you are going to go, what the heck is A Song of Ascents, right? And let me just tell you a little bit about what that means for those of you who may not know. So the song of a, a song of a sense is a collection of psalms within the psalms, okay? And it's 15 of them. It goes from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, and um, 
We actually did a PT with God series on that over the summer. And so if after this message you're like, oh, I don't know that I caught that one or I have an interest in learning more and reading more through those psalms, uh, just let us know. And we, we've got all these on, on file and, and we can get you a copy, okay? So just let us know. But you've probably heard, what do you mean like songs within songs? Because psalms generally is referred to as a whole collection of songs. So what is this songs of ascent that are within these broad general psalms? Well, the answer to that is that these songs of ascent, these 15 particular songs, were songs that the Israelites would sing on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they would do this uh, three times a year for certain festivals, and these festivals were to be done as a reminder of all that God had done for them in their lives. So they would, they would go and, and for all these different festivals, and uh, it was a little frustrating, to be honest with you, uh, digging through which particular festivals they did this for, because there's not a concrete 100% cross-the-board agreement as to which ones they were there for. But the broad general principle is they're all going there to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship the Lord for all that God has provided for them. Okay? And so when you think through all of Israel's uh, history and how God has done that, um, you can probably think of what some of those uh, festivals may be. So they're required to go three times a year, and uh, as I'm going to Israel for the first time next week, I'll find out exactly what the geography is like, but Israel does sit up on a, on a hilltop. And so the, the people would have to come from different parts of the country and go through valleys and then and come right back up to the top of the hill to worship the Lord, singing these songs. And now the interesting thing about this particular psalm, out of all the songs of ascent, is the fact that it's called a penitential psalm. I don't know that we use that word a whole lot in our vocabulary anymore, but to be penitent means to be sorry from the wrong that you have done. And not only just be sorry for the wrong that you've done, but to re- repent from that. It's a turning from the wrong and doing the right. So what we'll see in, in the psalm here today is the psalmist, he's starting out in the abyss of despair. But then, kind of like how these songs are, in, are, in, are intended, it's almost like a, a literal psalm. He's using these metaphors that almost relate to real-life geography of moving up this plane, starting in the valley, the valley of his despair, but then rising, gradually rising to putting his hope in a true lifeline, a true rescuer from his despair. So if you got your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn to Psalm 130. I'm going to grab a little bit of water. Uh, my voice is a little off this week. Um, started with the youth on Wednesday night. It's out of nowhere. So if I sound somewhere between Kermit the Frog and Mickey Mouse today, that's, that's what's going on. All right? So Psalm 130, a song of ascents, and I'm just going to read through the first two verses, and we'll unpack the first two verses, and then we'll continue to move through. So here we go. And the psalmist writes here, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas. For mercy. And so, right off the bat, we read together that the psalmist has a real problem. He's in trouble. And 
you can pick up right there, there's a, there's a sense of urgency in, in the text, in his voice, if we're trying to hear it. It says, out of the depths, he's crying out. He's crying out to who? He's crying out to the Lord, and he's begging for the Lord to listen to him. Begging for the Lord to be attentive to his cry for mercy. Now, depths here, when you first read it, you kind of think, well, what's depths, what's he talking about? Is he talking about crying out out of the deep recesses of his soul? Is that what he's talking about? Well, the answer is uh, no, uh, because when you look up the Hebrew word for that and you look at where it appears for when it is used, depths right there is actually a reference to really deep waters. Uh, in other areas, it, it's going to be used for uh, the depths of the ocean, okay? So what is he saying here? Because he's using depths in a metaphorical sense as a reference to drowning in the sea. And the psalmist is essentially saying, hey, I'm drowning here in the depths of the ocean, in the depths of my despair. There's no possible way I can get myself out. So I'm going to cry out to Yahweh for rescue, my, my lifeline. And the image, this metaphor that the psalmist is using of drowning in the depths of the sea is really being used, more importantly, as a metaphor for sin. The psalmist recognizes that they've sinned before a holy God, and, and they're up to their neck in it. They're like drowning in it. There's no escaping it. They are completely covered in it. And so the psalmist recognizes this position before God as one of desperate need. He's in desperate need of saving, and he cries out to Yahweh, the covenant name for the God of Israel, the one true God, as the only one who can save. And so right out of the blocks, right out of the blocks of this passage, the psalmist is recognizing he's got a real problem, and the real problem is sin. And the problem is not his alone. But the problem is something that is for all of us because we all face the reality of sin in our lives. And if you have your outline, we're going to just fire these off real quick. There's three things about the reality of sin that we need to recognize. One, we need to recognize that sin separates us from God. Okay, When you read the uh, third chapter of Genesis, you see that happen, right? Adam and Eve sin against God. And God kicks them out of the garden. They go from close, intimate fellowship. God is actually right there physically in, in their presence when you read through very carefully. And then he says, no, we can't have that anymore. You've, you've, broken my, you've broken my law. Okay? I'll reach out to you, but there's a distance now. It's not as close as it was before. So sin separates us from God. And, and that sin, secondly, is a part of our very nature. There's, there's nothing that we can do to escape it, okay? And the Bible is clear about that all over the place throughout Scripture, and you'll read about some of those um, verses in your, PT, in, not in your PT, but in your life groups this week that speak on that from the Old Testament, which speaks about it, to, and in the New Testament. And the other thing is that the reality of sin is something we can't fix on our own, in our own power. As I thought more about that line, I was like, I don't even know if I think that line can maybe even be twisted and turned a little bit better and say a problem that humanity can't fix on our own. And when you say it that way, the clue is there has to be an, a source outside of ourselves that, that can fix that. Because other people 
can't fix the sin problem for us either. Okay? So this idea of we can't fix it, other people can't fix it for us, this issue of sin, this reality that we all deal with, it kind of goes against how culture normally operates, doesn't it? it? It totally goes against it. I mean, there's a lot of places in our lives that um, we can go to to look for help when we're in desperate need of help. When you feel like you're in situations in life where you're like the psalmist, where you're just drowning, you're just like, I don't know what to do. I just feel like I'm drowning here. Who do I cry out to? Who can I go to for help? Who do you count on? Who's the expert you seek out? Who do you think will solve the problem? And there's a lot of places um, that we can go in culture for that. You know, if people feel like they're drowning in their marriage and they need a lifeline, they might want to phone a, a really trusted therapist, or maybe they've got a really close friend who's experienced in helping people in, in marriage. Or maybe, you know, people that are really struggling in their finances and they feel like they're drowning under the weight of what's going on in their finances, their lifeline might be Dave Ramsey, okay? <laughs> he gets a lot of people looking to him for a lifeline, all right? What about illnesses? People who have serious illnesses are going to want to find the best doctor they can. The best doctor is going to be their, their lifeline. And in this time of the year, we're already getting bombarded with, buy this, buy that, it's Christmas, even though it's not Christmas, and you're like, gosh, what am I going to do, what am I going to do? Or if you're in a tight pinch for someone's birthday or whatever, you can't find it out there, what do you do? You pull out your phone and you go to Amazon or Google. Get it in two days. Done. Problem solved. Amazon is your lifeline. If you have an urgent question, you're in the middle of a conversation, hey, what's um, the definition of this? Or when did this person die? Or whatever the question is, right? And you don't know the answer to it, and you just, it's on your head, but you can't get it out. You pull out your phone, where are you going to go? Google. Yes, Google is your lifeline, right? So we've got all these problems in our life. We've got serious problems. We have more minor problems. And we all have ways of dealing with it, and people we look to to help us out, services we look to, individuals we look to to help us solve our problem. But how do we deal with the problem of sin? I think if we look around our, our culture, and I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but I think some people dealing with the problem of sin, they just flat out ignore it or they flat out deny it. And usually that's done by playing some sort of comparison game that you've probably heard people do, right? They might come to the conclusion or just confess, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as fill in the blank, right? Or maybe it's, well, I'm not perfect, but I know I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I mean, I haven't broken any laws. I'm not in trouble with anything. All, all's good. I'm, not, I'm a good person. And then if you look um, to how other religions deal with the problem of sin, looking outside of biblical Christianity, they're going to tell you that you yourself or maybe some other people you know can do enough good things for you to get right with God. And, uh, I mean, I, had, I went to Utah over the summer, and I, I, ex, I experienced that reality of witnessing to, to Mormons. And uh, we would go to one of their events and, uh, you know, try to reach out to people there um, and, and, and let them know the true gospel. 
And a lot of times it was, if you want to talk about Jesus, and they knew who we were, it was like, hey, we don't want to talk to you. We're good. We're good. We're good. We're good. Why are you here? We're good. We don't need anything. We're happy. Get out of here. All right? Um, I'm saying it with a little more force than that, but some conveyed that attitude in what they were saying. Um, Here's another thing that you've probably heard in our culture, which I'm still trying to understand what it means. Some people are constantly looking to become a better version of themselves. Okay? Some people think that the problem of sin can, can be dealt with through political means, through politics. You know, it's like if we just get the right legislation that everyone can agree upon, life's going to be good. It'll all be solved through that. I think it'd be interesting if we took a poll in the room and asked the question, what do you think is the most serious problem of our time? It'd be interesting to see what everyone's answer would be. And um, to me, the most serious problem of our time is the most serious problem of Adam's time, Noah's time, Abraham's time, Moses' time, David's time, the Old Testament prophet's time, Jesus' time, the early church's time, the reformer's time, our time today. Can you guess it? Sin, yeah. Good, you guys nailed it. You didn't fail it, right? We played that game last night. You all passed. Good, good, good. And I don't say that to try to sound super spiritual or anything, but it's just the reality of, of our fallen, broken world. That's the huge issue, the huge problem. So just a, a quick recap here of verse 1. He says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And the writer of this psalm, he's honest about the reality of the sin in his life, and he recognizes he's in need of desperate saving from his own sin because he's drowning in it. And if we're honest to God and to ourselves, Sin does make us feel this way about ourselves, like we're drowning. There's probably been moments in your life where you've, you've thought that or agreed with that. And, and sadly, instead of running to the Lord, some run to other gods, false senses of security, or passions that, that feel good in the moment, but like a drug, it dissipates and goes away. And I don't know if you've been there before meeting Christ or not, but I, I definitely have been there before meeting Christ. And so our world has all these ways of dealing with the problems of sin, but who has the best lifeline? Who can truly rescue? And instead of crying out to false gods who cannot save, the psalmist is crying out in desperation to the living God, to Yahweh, the covenant name God gave to his people Israel, because only the living God can hear and know our voice. We're kind of picking up here in, in, in verse 2 because God hears. God is personal. He knows the sound of our voice. He knows everything that we're going through. He is intimately acquainted with us. Nothing escapes his watchful eyes and listening ears. In, in the psalm, I was uh, just reviewing things this morning out in our youth center, and there's a verse on the board in the youth center Uh, on one of our boards, and it says that um, in the Psalms, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and that God knows you from the moment of conception. He knows everything about you. So he's intimately acquainted with us. Nothing escapes his watchful eyes and listening ears. Now, what does the psalmist want God to do? 
It says right there in verse 2, what does he want God to do? What does he want him to listen to, in other words, is what I should say. There's a reason that he cries out to the Lord in desperation, right? And it it actually says he's making a plea to the Lord. And what's the plea for? It's for mercy. The psalmist's plea is for mercy. So plea, it's used, this word's still used today, right? It's used in a judicial sense in our court system. Like when someone is in trouble with the law, right, and they get caught, they want to make a plea bargain. They want to make a plea deal because they want to have their sentence reduced, right? So the plea is essentially an appeal to the mercy of the court. And the psalmist recognizes that God is judge and he throws himself down in God's court begging for mercy because he knows he has wronged God. He knows He's deserving of God's judgment. And so he throws himself down in the court, begging for mercy. And why? Because he doesn't have the ability in his own power to make things right with God. Okay? Out of the depths, remember? So he comes to the court in the wrong, and he appeals to God's mercy. To appeal to God's mercy is is saying you're appealing to his compassionate love. Okay? Okay? And when we are in desperate situation, we have to look outside of ourselves for help. We need a sort of lifeline. We're looking for one. And so why does the psalmist turn to God? Because he recognizes that God alone is the only person who has a solution for his sin. He recognizes he's completely unworthy of standing before a holy God like we, all of us are. So let's move on to verse 3 here. Verse 3. We've seen the problem. The problem is sin. We've hit that hard. Okay? And you got to get to the bad news before you get to the good news. Verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? And right there, um, he's asking a rhetorical question. Because the answer is, of course, well, no one. Everything that we just covered, no one can stand before God blameless. Like, we all come before him guilty. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't know about you, but when I first read this line about uh, if God should mark iniquities, who could stand? Some, for some reason in the recesses of my mind, I went back to, like, my junior high years uh, of being in school and, and doing something wrong in, in the classroom. Either I totally went against the rules the teacher had set up, or I just really did something ridiculous that day, right? And, it's, and so what, what does the teacher do? I don't know if this ever happened to you. Perhaps you had a more gracious teacher than I did. But, um, you know, pick up the marker, turn around, go to the board, write your name, and maybe a check, and say, all right, Matt, you're staying after school today. Um, you're in like a, a minor detention, right? We got to de- detain you because you're so out of control or whatever. Um, I really wasn't that out of control of a kid, but... It was, uh, but that's kind of what they would convey to you, right? You'd get your name on the board, you'd get a check mark there, and then they would watch you like a hawk the rest of the time in the classroom. And, you know, you did something again, dropped your pencil the wrong way, fell asleep or whatever, um, gave your friend a noogie in class in front of everybody. Then you'd get another check mark on the board and you'd have to stay even longer, right? Well, if God, if all he ever did was put check marks by everyone's name, how can you stand before him? We're guilty, right? None of us can stand before a holy, 
God, a morally pure God, and argue our case against him. The evidence against us is overwhelming. So what's the solution? The solution is God's forgiveness. The solution is God's forgiveness, and it's right here in verse 4. But with you, there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. You see, is God a judge? Yes. But, but he's not just a judge that's singling out all of our sins every single time. He's also a God who forgives. And I really like how the Hebrew uh, captures it here. It actually says when you translate it literally about this part about there is forgiveness, it says, but with you, the forgiveness, which I think is really cool because it's, it's showing that part of God's nature, part of God's character is to forgive. It is to be merciful, okay? We have to hold those two in balance. We often, we often don't. God is, uh, is a God of justice. God is also a God of compassion and mercy, and I love how this comes out in Exodus 35, or not 35, Exodus 34, 6. It says, the Lord passed before him, him being Moses, and here's what he proclaims to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God, of, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Did you catch what God said about himself? <laughs> That's pretty cool. And I think the question for us is, do we really believe that? And do we really want that? In, uh, in the book of Titus, verse 1, or not verse 1, book of Titus, chapter 1, verse 2, Paul talks about how he, he makes a claim on God that God can never lie. And in Hebrews 6.18, it says it's impossible for God to lie. And this makes total sense, because if he can lie if there's even a hint, then everything about God's character is at stake and everything collapses. I mean, because how can we truly trust anyone ultimately with everything if they're not totally true, right? So just as God can't deny the truth about his divine justice, he can't deny the truth about his divine mercy either. All right? And thank God for that. Um. And so one of the ways that God reflects his love to you is, this, is through this compassion, through his, through his mercy, okay, which comes through the forgiveness of sin. But with you, there is forgiveness of sin. I love that line there. There is forgiveness of sin. Not like, eh, there might be someday. Uh, it doesn't say through your own efforts plus what God does, there will be forgiveness of sin. It doesn't even say maybe someday there will be. It says that God's mercy is great enough right now to forgive you of all of your sins. It's available, okay? Still available today, just like it was available whenever this was written how many thousands of years ago? Because it's consistent with God's character. And interest, God's love and his forgiveness, it's so much greater than our own, isn't it? I mean, uh, sometimes you might... Be penitent, right? Uh, you might be repentant, sorrowful for a wrong that you've done to somebody else. You recognize it. You're sorrowful about it. You go to that other person. You explain everything. You, you confess. You apologize. You try to make things right. But then sometimes there's something in your heart when you walk away and you're like, I don't know if they're really going to forgive me. I just don't know, right? 
Or what if it's kind of flipped around? You know, what if um, you're the one who's been wronged, and even though the person who wronged you is generally sorry towards you, you're the one that kind of holds things against them and have a hard time completely forgiving them. But God's forgiveness and love is so much greater than ours because when you come to him with a repentant heart for the forgiveness of your sin, he fully pardons you immediately. 1 John 1.19 says it this way, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, keyword, from all unrighteousness. The love of God is reflected in his mercy, his compassion, his forgiveness. He doesn't just mark your wrongs and look at how badly you've messed things up in, his, in your life. Doesn't fold his arms and just kind of like, all right, I'm done with you, right? He doesn't do that. He loves you too much for that. And God offers you a rescue plan, a lifeline, if you will, a way out of drowning in your sin from being drowned in the depths of the sea. And that rescue plan today is found in Jesus Christ. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so God's rescue plan for all of us, the way from perishing The way out from perishing in our sin is through faith in Jesus. 1 John 4.10 explains it like this. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God makes the move towards us because he loved us so much. He wanted to provide a lifeline through Jesus Christ to rescue us. And so the ultimate demonstration of God's love towards you is sending Jesus into the world who lived a sinless life, who didn't deserve to die, but went willingly to the cross. He went willingly to the cross as a sacrifice for your sin and for mine. And when you put your faith in the fact that Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice for your sin on the cross, that he died in your place, that God raised him from the dead, Jesus says in the Bible that when you do this, you immediately pass from death to life. And that's what he says in John 5, 24. So now that we've identified the problem, which is sin, the solution is God's forgiveness, which comes through faith in Christ. Thank God for that. Now, what's the next step? What's the next step for the psalmist? Let's look at verses 5 and 6 together. Verses 5 and 6. Here's what he says in in verses 5 and 6. Psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. And so, once the psalmist recognizes that he's forgiven of his sin, the next step that he's doing, his posture is he's, he's waiting, which really sounds counterintuitive. Like, what on earth is he, is he waiting for? What is this about? Does it mean he can just, like, sit back and not do a thing until Jesus comes? Can he just sit back and, and pad his bank account? Um, does he get to live with no regard to any other sin issues that come up in his life? Because, after all, he's forgiven. So can he just live it up? 
until Jesus comes. And of course, when you look through what the Bible has to say, when you look at what we've gone through in Galatians in the last few weeks, the answer to that is pretty obvious. It's no, of course not. So what's he talking about waiting for the Lord? Well, I think what the psalmist is talking about is he's waiting for God's redemptive plan. I think he's waiting, I think he's talking about waiting for God's redemptive plan. Because he's admitting his sin, he's been forgiven of God, and when you do that, you are in God's redemptive plan, but there's also more to it. There's a thing that um, is said in theology regarding, I believe it's, is it sanctification or salvation of, you've been saved, God's dealt with all your sin, it's done with, you are saved in the present, in the moment from everything, right? And he asks you to be and live a certain way. And then it's like, you are going to be saved. There's still this future reality to God's redemption that we're still looking forward to, that we're still waiting on, right? And so to be in God's redemptive plan means that we live in God's redemptive plan. We live under it. In Romans 6.4, it talks about after baptism of Jesus cleansing us from sin, that we're Baptism is a signifying of you know, being dead with Christ and being raised to newness of life. And he says, walk in newness of life. In other words, there's something to be walking in and doing in right now today as part of this redemptive plan. And so how does the Christian wait for the Lord? How do we live under God's redemptive plan? And I think the first thing is you live in faithful daily dependence on him. Because faithfully depending on him is a sign of your repentant heart. It's, it's, putting, it's allowing yourself to say, God, you're in control more than I am in control, right? He's waiting on the Lord with all of who he is, with his whole being. And he's not only trusting God for his eternity future, But to wait on the Lord right now says, I'm waiting for God right now for all that I am, for the day-to-day struggles of life right now. Not just for the future, but I can have hope and live right now the way God wants me to live. And so with all the struggles going on in the psalmist world, in our time today, um, what gives us hope? How do we live continually day by day in faithful dependence on the Lord? And I believe he puts it right there. It's through God's word. The hope is through God's word. While he's waiting on the future, while he's dealing with the realities of uh, life now in today's world, he's gaining strength for today, and his bright hope for tomorrow is found through the possession of God's word. He looks for the Bible for how to live life now, for truth, for wisdom, for assurance regarding his future, for conviction of sin, for what it means to live in right relationship with God right now. And so the Bible is his hope. The Bible is like a lifeline for him in the moment right now. It's useful for growing in relationship with with God and useful for, for training in godliness. It's his word that helps us to live out the redemptive life he's called us to live in right now. So waiting on the Lord involves daily dependence on him. It involves hope in his word. But then there's a third part, I think we put on your outline there. His word calls us to live with eager expectation for the completion of God's redemptive plan. 
So it's waiting with eager expectation for God's redemptive plan, which up there involves Christ's return. I'm going to read verse 6 again real quick. My soul waits for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. What's going on there? Well, a watchman is someone uh, in, in the time of Israel who they would be posted on a city wall, right, where they're supposed to protect the city, look out for the city, or if they're not a soldier posted on the wall, they might be responsible for a wealthy person's vineyard, and there might be a, a post there that they get into, and there's a lookout post, and they just, they're all looking for, for enemies and protect, protecting their, their turf, right? And so he's saying, I'm waiting more than the watchman waits for the morning. And so if you're a night watchman, that's really got to be kind of freaky, because you don't have modern technology, you're just trying to use this, and you hope the moon's out to see something, right? And so naturally, there'd be a little bit of fear about where the enemy is coming. And even today, with modern technology, if you watch the news enough, there's a lot of things and attacks that happen in the dark because people are more unsuspecting. It's harder to react well, to know where they are positionally, right? And so he's waiting with a greater hope and fervor than the night watchman. Now, he's using that as a metaphor, but I think it's, it's, it's being used, the metaphor is being used in that spiritual sense because in the, in the Bible, the light is used to God's salvation, the darkness is used for, for evil. And so I think what he's talking about there is I'm waiting for the watchman more than the watchman waits for the morning because God's light is representative of the, of the morning, of a new day coming, a new dawn is coming when all darkness is done away with. I don't have to like white-knuckle it through the night anymore. I have assurance now for what is going to happen, and, and, and I can live through God's word um, in, in the night and depend on that because I know what God is going to do. I know how God is coming. I know how he's going to redeem all things. And so for the Christian today, we look at this all through the lens of Christ, where we look to his second coming with eager expectation of all those things and when they'll happen. And we can expect them to happen because it's grounded in his word, which is grounded in his character. All right, last couple verses. Um, so here, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And this is, a, this is a, an awesome couple of verses because it's a proclamation with a promise. Because of all the amazing things that God has done and will do, the psalmist is shouting out to his nation, to his community, to his oikos, if you will, calling on them to put their hope in the Lord because of all of who God is and what he's done. Even though Israel turned their backs on God, he continued to show his faithful, compassionate love towards them, his mercy. He brought them out of Egypt. He, he, when, he, when they went into exile, he brought them back out of exile. He brought them Jesus. They went into a dispersion again. And here they are again today in the land of Israel that, where I believe God is doing something in regarding his, his future plan in regards to his word and this redemption that we're talking about. Because they're back. They're moving towards the promised land. And all this is a demonstration of God's steadfast love and, and mercy to his people. And he's consistently done that throughout their history. And I love what it says there, that God's love, his redemption, it's plentiful. Like, there's more than enough, right? God's redemption is so plentiful that the psalmist ties it to a promise. He tells his people that one day 
God will redeem Israel from all their sins. And presently, most ethnic Jews um, probably don't really, well, they don't see Jesus as their Messiah. There's, the Bible explains this as a partial hardening of hearts that has come upon them. But someday, the Bible also says, and you'll go through it in your, in your life groups this week, that that's going to all be removed someday, and they will all be redeemed. God will redeem all of Israel from all their sins. And that's the promise that is made in verse 8. So the Song of Ascent shows us that we're all in desperate need because we have a desperate problem, a problem much more serious than what happens on a game show. And the problem is, is sin. But Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love to us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the solution to our problem of sin is God's forgiveness. Jesus is God's rescue plan for humanity's sin and despair. He is your true lifeline. And then what do you have? What do you do when you have him? You, you wait. You wait for him to restore all things. You wait through faithfulness and daily dependence, through hope in his word. You wait with an attitude of eager expectation for his return. And while you're waiting for that, continue to worship him, to tell others about him for this amazing redemptive love that he has demonstrated to you in your life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you are a God of um, justice, but also a God of mercy, and we are so grateful for that, Lord. You're a God of plentiful redemption, and we thank you that we, we can have a true, real lifeline who knows how to deal with the problem of sin and evil in our world and in our own, in our own hearts. And I just pray if there's anybody here today who wants to take that step of admitting their need for you and want to and, and put their faith in you and walk with you, I just pray, Lord, that they would come up to one of us pastors and, and we can talk to them about that. And I pray if there's anybody here um, who does need your, who is a believer, but um, maybe they're walking in a, in a manner that is not right with you and they need your mercy and forgiveness, I just pray that they would ask you for that. I just pray that they would ask you for that because with you, there is forgiveness. So we thank you, Lord, and we continue to worship you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.